Welcome to What Makes Up Your Mind, updates from the frontiers of neuroscience, well-being, and mental health from the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University's School of Medicine. This is your invitation to meet the faculty dedicated to understanding our most complex organ, committed to curing mental illness, and inspired to help create a healthier, thriving world. It's good to be back with you on What Makes Up Your Mind. I'm Jane McMillan. I'm guessing that few of us can say that we have never double or triple checked whether we turned off the stove or locked the door. Maybe we spend too much time ruminating over the same worry or fear. Who doesn't remember childhood games like avoiding cracks in a sidewalk or the satisfaction of lining up our toys just right? Now, these scenarios fall under what's considered normal behavior. Okay, maybe quirky. Somebody may be quite particular or fastidious over certain things. Could even be considered comedic at times. And they occur in fairly isolated instances. But what if we could, for a moment, imagine managing constant, debilitating, mostly irrational fears and the unending need to try to counteract them? Well, that would give us just an idea of how obsessive-compulsive disorders tragically impair the lives of sufferers. Now, thankfully, we are in a time and place in which effective treatments not only exist, but they're continually evolving. New technologies, new discoveries about the function of the human brain, and new uses for drugs not previously thought to have beneficial impacts are all coming together, and they're opening up exciting possibilities to truly change lives. Now, we're lucky enough to have with us a pioneering researcher in this area, Dr. Carolyn Rodriguez, professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University, director of the Translational Therapeutics Lab, where she and her team are working on the development of new fast-acting therapies for OCD. Dr. Rodriguez, thank you so much for joining us today on What Makes Up Your Mind. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You've done so much research into OCD and new treatments, and you've been on the cutting edge of some new treatments that we're going to be talking about, development of them. But could we start with some basics? How do you define OCD and how it presents itself? Oh, absolutely. So obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD It's characterized by intrusive thoughts or obsessions that increases anxiety in individuals and then compulsions, which are repetitive actions or thoughts that serve to neutralize or decrease the individual's anxiety generated by the obsession. It affects um, about 2% of the general population. And in order to meet criteria for it, you need to have those obsessions and compulsions at least an hour a day for at least a year. And it needs to cause um, impairment in, in your life. So disrupting relationships or work. And so even though, you know, all of us may have a thought that pops into our mind or checking for our passport or something like that, it doesn't really typically cross that threshold. And so that's how we define something that is um, more on the order of a disorder as opposed to something that, you know, checking checking fear that you've forgotten something can, can be actually helpful sometimes. <laughs> so, well, that's true. So you're talking about life disruption. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And when you say for an hour a day, uh, is that continuous? Is that collectively? Yeah. Yeah, collectively. Some people can have intermittent thoughts, but if we ask people to sort of think about the thoughts, if they could kind of compress them and add them up, is it more than an hour a day? And most fall into the moderate to severe range. So they very easily clear one, one hour per day. So it would be fairly obvious then. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and one of the things that's not so obvious and what leads to sometimes on average taking somewhere between 14 to 17 years for between somebody to get um, ha- first have symptoms and then have the diagnosis and, and, and treatment with first line treatments is that sometimes it can be under recognized. So there are um, themes that people with OCD have that are commonly depicted in movies and things like that for when people have intrusive thoughts of contamination, for example, and they'll do ritualized hand washing or uh, repetitive hand washing. That's one of the more common ones. But some of the themes that are not as common are, for example, harm obsessions. So these are where people have intrusive thoughts that potentially they're driving down the street and they have this intrusive thought they'd run somebody over and they have to turn their car around and check to see if they actually have when they haven't, right? Or they go home and they continuously check the news, listen to the radio to see if there's any news report of of them harming somebody. And then also one of the more familiar ones is symmetry and ordering people needing to have things perfectly aligned or else it makes them very, very nervous. But not as known ones are um, having uh, taboo thoughts that are inconsistent with their thoughts and values. And that leads to um, mental rituals. These are things like prayers, uh, counting, um, phrases that they have to repeat to neutralize those intrusive thoughts. How serious is this disorder? I mean, how how serious can it become? Because it can be portrayed even in a humorous way in media and television and movies. But how serious can it get? Yeah. Well, one of the one of the patients that really inspired me to go into this line of research, um, you know, he was in front of me and talking about this ritualized hand watching. But, you know, his hands were covered with gloves. And when I asked them to take him off, his hands were red and cracked and just, you know, it looked so painful. And he just seemed so upset about it. And, and it's just so heartbreaking when you see something like that. Or if you have contamination uh, to the point where you can't be in a relationship with somebody for fear of contamination. So it can really impact a person's uh, well-being, their life, and also the trajectory of their life. Um, There are individuals that I've seen, for example, where in in college, you know, they start to have these intrusive thoughts and they have to write and rewrite their homework or spend hours like trying to try on different clothes because it just doesn't doesn't feel right and they need to put it on with a particular thought or in a particular way so that it feels right and they can ultimately end up leaving college and so again these things really really impact a person's life is there a way to test for it rather than self-reporting rather than somebody self-monitoring because I would guess that if someone were in the throes of this and the anxiety that goes along with it, it might be hard to tabulate or to measure or time to see, did I pass the hour? Have we come to a point where there is now technology or or medical ways to test for this objectively? Yeah. 
that is the that's the aspiration, right? To have uh, you know some kind of marker that could help uh, determine or help us guide diagnosis. But for right now, we it is uh, based on self-report. There is uh, an assessment called the Yale Brown Obsessive Compulsive Rating Scale, or Y-Box for short, and it measures the obsessions, um, compulsions, and these different kinds of themes. And um, it also measures the severity. So how long people are having these thoughts, how much it's disrupting them. And one of the things when we, we administer this, this rating scale is that people who have not sort of seen it written out or heard these symptoms before, it's very therapeutic for them just to, to say like, wait a second, I'm not alone. And to the point where there's like a whole rating scale based on these symptoms. So it can be really nice to and relieving for some people to be able to get the diagnosis. I would imagine so. I've heard you do this before, and I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you to do it for us now. And that is give us a thought experiment. Because I think, at least for me, I'm still having a little bit of a tough time putting myself in someone's shoes that is going through this. Maybe one of your thought experiments would help us be in the shoes of somebody really suffering from OCD. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, one of the thought experiments I'd like to do is imagine imagine with me for a moment that you've been hiking in the desert and you were parched, so thirsty, can't think of nothing else except drinking some water but you forgot your canteen and the only water lies at the bottom of a toilet bowl. So would you drink it? So I'll give you a moment to think. So either, mm. yes, I would drink it right away. Um, no, absolutely not. I wouldn't drink it. Or I would kind of weigh my options a little bit, but ultimately I would drink. Well, I guess I would need to know how dire my situation was. Very dire. Very, very dire. Very dire. Okay. Death is a possibility. Yes. I would probably hesitate and then ultimately drink it. Okay. And what, what caused your hesitation? Well. Why, why didn't you just drink it right away? Why oh, didn't you sure. say, oh, well, yeah, okay. The toilet water. Yeah. Well, it's toilet. Uh, makes you wonder <laughs> what's in it. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. And of what, course, you know, what's it, it going to okay. do to me if I drink yeah. it? Sure. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. So this is, this is a, you know, a very, very common thing, right? You're worried about the contaminations, the contamination in, in, in the toilet. And so instead of drinking right away, you're kind of thinking about it, making some calculations. And so, um, you know, that, that moment, that hesitation that you had before, you know, actually drinking and, and having something that is actually life-sustaining for you, is uh, is a little bit like somebody who has OCD with contamination, how they might approach just a simple water fountain. Uh -huh. In San Francisco Exploratorium, they have this exhibit, which is a never-before-used toilet that's like retrofitted with a drinking fountain. And what's interesting is when you go to the Exploratorium, you'll see people in these sort of three different categories. Some of them will, you know, think it's funny, go up to it. They'll like start, drink, you know, drinking um, and commenting on it. Some people who are like trying to avoid it at all costs. Uh, some people who you know, kind of think and like look at the regular drinking fountain that's a little far away and then and then come back to it. You know, I like to highlight this just because for somebody with OCD, they really have to make these calculations about every decision and things that they do. So, for example, somebody with OCD might 
might uh, avoid going to the doctor's office because they don't want to go to the bathroom at the doctor's office, or um, they might not go go out with their friends, or they might hold um, if they have to go to the bathroom and they can be at risk for urinary tract infections. So it really has a lot of ramifications. Is it a spectrum? Are we all kind of on this spectrum? Do we know a cause? Is it triggered? Is it genetic? I think, you know, I'm a believer that nature isn't carved at its joints and that we all are a continuum of all these different things, a continuum of anxiety, continuum of, of mood states. And there, you know, there is a spectrum also for people who have the disorder in terms of the disability of their of their symptoms. Also in terms of responsiveness to to treatments. Um, and you know, as a as a clinician and as a scientist, um, I think one of the things that again is very aspiration is being able to say what treatment is best and also for the severity and the type of um, symptoms that an individual has. Unfortunately, to um, answer your second question, which is we don't know what causes OCD, but there have been some links to hyperactivity in a frontostriatal thalamocortical loop, um, which is comprised of um, a hyperactive circuit involving the orbitofrontal cortex, which is in the front part of the brain and is important for generating um, thoughts, and the striatum which is um, a region of the brain that's important for motor movement. And then the thalamus, which is a relay center that loops back to the orbital frontal cortex. So you've been able to kind of see the thought process in an OCD response through these parts of the brain. Well, well, actually, we, we can't see the thought process. I think this is one of the great unknowns. Like how how is an, one thought... How, how is that thought like encoded in the brain? We don't actually know. So this is more, this hyperactivity, there's converging lines of evidence. And one, one of those uh, ways of looking at it is through functional uh, magnetic resonance imaging, which looks at bold signal, which is like, you know, changes in, in um, flow and activity in those regions of the brain. So again, it's not causal. But, but there are some associations that people with OCD have these. And that's just one. There are studies looking at um, different kinds of abnormalities in, in terms of uh, thought process, in terms of reward circuitry. So we're really just at the very tip of trying to know more about what generates and what sustains this. For most people, like 25% of people have the diagnosis by age 14. So it definitely is on the sort of, you know, adolescent trajectory. If somebody has the symptoms as a new onset later in life, we tend to think that this is more due to um, like an injury or some other reason. Sure, that makes sense. If somebody has a young child under 18 and they're they're, they're wondering, they're listening to this and they're thinking, oh, my child likes to line up all of his or her toys a certain way. Or, you know, at what point do parents start to be concerned or, or is that an overreaction? Well, I, th- I would go back to sort of the definition of OCD and diagnosis. So it needs to cause impairment and distress and, and functioning, right? So if, if it's just a little bit or not causing impairment, then it, then it, wouldn't, it that wouldn't have the diagnosis. Okay. But at the same time, you know, parents' intuition is very 
is very great, meaning that, um, you know, if, if as a parent you sense that something is wrong, that something is off, um, th- please get a second opinion um, because, uh, you know, it, it can be very helpful both ways in terms of, you know, feeling relief that this is just something that's within within the normal spectrum of behavior, or that maybe it's a sign that something is going slightly awry, and uh, you can get more more proactive in terms of uh, treatment. Are there comorbidities that someone would watch for or be aware of? Obviously, anxiety is is a huge component, but are there along with that other comorbidities? Absolutely. So these are things like uh, major depression. Some people can have comorbid depression that sort of manifests at the same time, but sometimes people can feel sad and blue and down because of OCD, because they feel like their mind is a is a prison essentially, and it can make people feel feel really really depressed. The good thing is that there are good treatments for depression, and some of the treatments for depression overlap with OCD in terms of um, serotonin reuptake inhibitors. If you have things or you know substance use, sometimes people cope with the difficulty with substances mm-hmm. that can turn into substance abuse. So there, there are others, but. Again, I think there's no substitute for intuition. And if something doesn't feel right, doesn't look right, is causing pain and distress, then that, that's the time to, to reach out for help. Let's hear all about the treatments and the research and the progress that's being made, because it, it is pretty amazing. The standard treatment has been, as you mentioned, antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds and cognitive behavioral therapy. Is that still the starting point? Yes, that's right. Yeah. And cognitive behavioral therapy, there's a special kind for OCD called exposure and response prevention, which basically is a way to learn how to unlink the anxiety generated with the intrusive thought and a sense or feeling that one has to do the behavior to neutralize or decrease the anxiety. And so um, if you bring on the sort of exposure part of exposing somebody to that feared thing that makes them anxious and then encourage them not to do the behavior, then the brain can learn that the anxiety will just go down on its own as opposed to having to do that behavior. And um, both um, medication with serotonin reuptake inhibitors and cognitive behavioral therapy help about um, half of individuals as a first-line treatment. And there's also a treatment algorithm by the American Psychiatric Association, meaning that the first serotonin reuptake inhibitor doesn't work. You can try a second one, a third one. You can augment uh, with an antipsychotic medication. You can augment with CBT. And so the good news is that for roughly seven out of 10 individuals, by following that algorithm, they will get some benefit. Would it be fair to say that that's kind of a long slog to find mm. the exact right thing yeah. and to go through CBT? and? Absolutely. You know, it, it takes months for just a trial of the first line treatments, and then it can be even more if you're trying different ones. I would say that one of the nice things is that that's not the end of the story. So the FDA has approved non-invasive neuromodulation. And also the FDA has approved uh, neuromodulation that is more invasive called deep brain stimulation, where like a kind of a pacemaker device is implanted in uh, the brain. There's very careful titration of the stimulation, electrical stimulation to the brain. And those too can also be very helpful for individuals. 
And my, my work, my research work is really focused on for patients who have tried standard treatments and it hasn't helped. What are things that the science, you know, our basic science is telling us and um, what could be promising candidates? And so that, that's really where my lab is. So focusing on can we rapidly relieve symptoms? Can we understand the mechanism of how thoughts and compulsive behaviors are generated in the brain? And, and then can we take that information to improve the efficacy and precision of treatment? And you've been a pioneer in researching the effects of fast-acting treatments like ketamine. Mm-hmm. You had an initial study and then a, and a five-year study that wrapped up a couple of years ago Some folks might have heard of ketamine. It's been approved by the FDA as an anesthetic. It also has been known as an illicit party drug called Special K. There is some hallucinogenic effects, but there has also been success in treating psychiatric disorders with this under special and strict guidance. What did you find in your study? So what that trial showed us, it was funded by National Institutes of Mental Health, It was designed as a double-blind placebo-controlled trial. So 45 OCD patients were randomized to get either ketamine at a low dose, 0.5 mg per kg, so 30 individuals, compared to an active control called midazolam that makes people feel a little bit woozy, so 15 on that side. And it was in patients with OCD who were not on medication and didn't have severe depression. And what we found was that there was a rapid reduction of OCD. Patients reported dramatic uh, relief on, on, akin to like having a vacation from their OCD. And that was replicating our prior study of ketamine uh, versus saline, but now with a, with a sort of stronger control. And then what we found is with a single infusion on the Yale-Brown Obsessive Compulsive Scalar Y-Box that I talked about in the beginning, patients um, experienced a significant and clinically meaningful reduction in their symptoms, and there was significant separation between midazolam and ketamine out to three weeks, but not four weeks. So that was really exciting to see that with a single infusion, these, these effects were persisting. They lasted for up to three weeks. And then were there, did you repeat the treatment to see if that was consistent over and over? That's the next question to ask. And, and it's a good question too, right? So if ketamine, if we've replicated our prior study and it's having good effects, well, then how, how frequently should I get it? Stay tuned for more research on that. But it does seem promising to have an extended effect. And now we're really focused in trying to understand the mechanisms, right? Like those patients who participated in the study, they were actually in the scanner when they were getting the infusion. And so we want to find out, are there changes in the brain that correspond to the changes in ketamine? Do we see changes in in um, this hyperactive OCD circuit? Is it, is it calmed down? Are there changes in glutamate um, neurochemical messenger? which it's thought that ketamine acts on. So there's a lot of exciting questions still to be explored. I can only imagine the relief for someone to have had that experience receiving ketamine and having an immediate retraction of of their symptoms Mm -hmm. and just yearn for that feeling all the time. Uh, Yes. The downside of ketamine, um, an addictive property, are there other side effects that we have to be concerned about? 
Oh, definitely. So, so with ketamine, and again, as a clinician, these are some of the downsides is that people dissociate. So they feel like they're floating. They feel like their limbs are rotating in space, like during, during the infusion. And then afterward, you can't drive for 24 hours. And then there's slight increase in systolic and diastolic blood pressure. And as well, ketamine is a drug of abuse. So we carefully screen that we're not giving this to to individuals who are currently abusing substances or have a history of abusing substances. Now, other drugs that are considered to be in the psychedelic class are being tested for treatment of PTSD and uh, treatment-resistant depression. Are you looking at any of those drugs as possible OCD treatments? Yeah, so ketamine is a dissociative anesthetic, and we're actually funded to study MDMA, which is an intactogen, working with a wonderful collaborative group, including Boris Heifetz, Leanne Williams, Peter Van Russell, Tricia Supes, and, and many others examining this question, does MDMA paired with cognitive behavioral therapy efficacious for decreasing OCD symptoms in this sort of proof of concept study above and beyond control uh, called D-methamphetamine, which is a, a strong, uh, strong active control. That's a stimulant just like M- MDMA. What's your very next uh, step in your lab, in your, in your work? And how can people help with that? Do you need volunteers? Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. So our lab email is ocdresearch at stanford.edu. And we are looking to recruit individuals to participate in the MDMA OCD study. But we also have a lot of different studies going on for OCD patients who are on medications or off medications. Dr. Peter Van Rossel is doing a really interesting study looking at the gas nitrous oxide in OCD. This is also called laughing gas and can be used in the dentist office. Um, But what we like about it is that it has the property where, you know, it has uh, glutamate and similar characteristics for ketamine, but it has a very rapid off life. And if you've you've ever had laughing gas in the dentist's um, (laughs) office, you know that you can drive home right away. Like, so the gas is in and goes right away. So it has very, very few side effects. That is fascinating and hopeful. If somebody is having issues or they think someone in their in their life that they care about is having issues that could be OCD, is their general practitioner the place to begin? How well equipped are most GPs, do you think, to recognize this or refer them? Yes, I, you know, I would say start with a trusted medical team member, right? And if you have suspicions of OCD, you know, voice them. And certainly it always helps to get, you know, a second opinion from somebody who's an OCD expert. The other is just to educate yourself in terms of all the resources there are online. The International OCD Foundation provides videos, educational worksheets, handouts. There are a lot of people who are very, very open about their OCD experiences. Um, There's a comedian named Maria Bamford who is very open about having um, harm OCD obsessions. So, you know, just getting a sense of these descriptions, seeing if these things fit can be really helpful in terms of where to start and also to be able to get resources for uh, treatments and for support. And we're going to have all the links that you mentioned and resources on uh, the podcast notes for this uh, podcast so folks can look right there and get anything that they need. The final question I have, and it really it's just I'm asking you for a comment. Would some people say, gosh, you know, this particular 
tendency could also be paired with creative expression or genius or it's part of their personality and are they going to change if this is dealt with or taken away or how how do you discuss that part of personality versus the disorder right um, well actually ketamine and and things like nitrous oxide are really helpful in terms of that conversation because for some people it's the first time that they have indeed a vacation from their their OCD like what what am I like aside from my disorder and what I would say is that um, you know OCD the voice of OCD is very strong in the sense that that is a fear you know if, if you don't have OCD then the fear right, kicks in is like well then who are you and things like that so so OCD itself has is a very strong pull to keep the person doing the OCD thoughts and behaviors. And one of the things that is also interesting is that when somebody is feeling better, they now have time and energy to re-engage in all the things that they have not done or maybe not had the opportunity to do. And so there is a loss and a mourning with that piece of it. But I've seen so many people like kind of come through on the other end and um, just be really happy and, and, and fulfilled and continue to manage it. But, but ha- having their world be more, more open um, is, is very satisfying as well. Dr. Carolyn Rodriguez, thank you for explaining all of this to us. And I'm looking forward to talking with you again as your research continues with these fast-acting treatments. What a relief that will be for so many. Thank you so much for your time. And it's so important to have these conversations and to get information out there to individuals who are, who are suffering and, and, and to be able to give them hope for treatments. Dr. Carolyn Rodriguez, Stanford Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, and director of the Translational Therapeutics Lab. Along with her research work, Dr. Rodriguez is also the Associate Dean in the Office of Academic Affairs and Consultation Liaison Psychiatrist at the Palo Alto Veterans Affairs Medical Center. As we mentioned, there are links to her work, her talks, her publications, and study volunteer opportunities, and also to Stanford Medicine's OCD treatment program, all in this episode's program notes. So please take a look. Thanks so much for joining us. Until next time on What Makes Up Your Mind, I'm Jane McMillan. You've been listening to What Makes Up Your Mind. Updates from the frontiers of neuroscience, well-being, and mental health from the experts in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine. For more information on this program and all of our transformational work, visit us at med.stanford.edu slash psychiatry. What Makes Up Your Mind? Updates from the Frontiers of Neuroscience, Wellbeing, and Mental Health is a production of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine, a copyright of the Board of Trustees of Stanford University.